Welcome to the General Soup Podcast, a podcast about all things related to special education accountability and support systems, also known as general supervision. I'm Sarah Dutre. And I'm Susan Hayes, and we will be your hosts from the National Center for Systemic Improvement, or NCSI, on this exploration of general supervision systems and also the world of soup jokes. Welcome to our first episode of the General Soup Podcast, short for general supervision. We're excited to explore this new format to geek out on results-based accountability and supports with you. I'm Sarah. And I'm Susan, and we're your hosts. We are the leads of the Results-Based Accountability and Supports Collaborative, or RBAS, part of the National Center for Systemic Improvement, or NCSI. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself briefly to our listeners? Thanks, Susan. I started my career as a special education teacher and learned to love monitoring and all things accountability while working at the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Special Education Programs. I've worked at West Ed for the past two years and I'm proud to work on NCSI. Susan, will you share a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Hayes. I've been honored to work at West Ed and on NCSI for the past several years. I mostly provide technical assistance to states around the design, implementation, and evaluation of their general supervision systems. And prior to joining WestEd, I worked in a state education agency in their assessment and accountability division. Um, And because this podcast is called General Soup, we'd now like to share our favorite soups with all of you. My favorite soup is butternut squash soup. I really like it best when the butternut squash is roasted first, and so I probably should clarify that as roasted butternut squash soup. Mm, That sounds really good. So I feel bad sharing this is Susan, my favorite soup at the moment, because it requires much less work. I feel like I've been doing a lot of slow cooking because it's, you just kind of dump it and go. I aspire to be the kind of cook that would roast the butternut squash first and then make a soup. But lately I've been, I'm going to do it today. I've been making a slow cooker chicken and dumpling, which isn't really a soup. It's more like a I don't know what a stew, but it's been working for me as the temperatures have gotten colder. Um, And as Sarah said, this is our general soup podcast, short for general supervision. And we will discuss all things general supervision. And we're going to organize these episodes around our theme. We love a good theme. So we're first going to set the table and provide a little bit of context around this podcast and our topic today. And then we'll move right into the soup du jour, which is a fabulous interview that we have lined up with Becky Davis and Nicole Adams from the South Carolina Department of Education, uh, sharing a bit about their system and our BAS journey. Then we will digest everything we learned from Becky and Nicole and share some reflections that Sarah and I have on their interview. And then finally, we will end with a dessert and or cheese plate, and we are going to share a highlight of a new resource that we've developed here at NCSI before we all close out with a cup of coffee. So that is our menu for today, and let's get started. So Sarah, why don't you set the table for us and provide some context on the focus of our episode today? Today on our episode, we are going to speak about the history of results-based accountability and the requirements of IDEA that have encouraged states to move toward more results-focused general supervision systems. When we talk with states about general supervision systems, we always go back to Section 616 of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, to talk about what the law says about monitoring systems. 
And what it says is that the primary focus of any federal, state, and monitoring activities should be on first improving educational results and functional outcomes for all children with disabilities. So just thinking through that, we really do believe that that really is the intention of the law and we're actually required by the law to focus on improving educational results and outcomes for kids with disabilities. The second focus of state monitoring activities is to ensure that districts are meeting the requirements of IDEA with a particular emphasis on the requirements that are most closely related to improving educational results for children with disabilities. So not only is the first purpose of any state monitoring activities or general supervision activities on improving results, but even the secondary purpose is ensuring compliance with the requirements that are most closely related to improving results. Thanks, Sarah. And I think what I would add to that, you know, really reflecting on the intent of the law is thinking about how that can shape the design and implementation of state general supervision systems. So what are general supervision systems? You know, at their core, it's a, a series of levers that state education agencies can pull to influence practice at the local level. And um, we often call general supervision systems state systems of accountability and support. So ultimately, it's you're at the state level monitoring LEA implementation of IDEA, but then also assisting, this is the support side of the equation, providing assistance and support to those LEAs to implement the law well. And as Sarah said, if we take it back to what's in the law, it's fundamentally about improving outcomes for students with disabilities, as well as ensuring compliance with the law. So throughout this podcast and our work on NCSI, we're trying to support states to, again, design, implement, and ultimately evaluate general supervision systems or accountability and support systems that are intended to improve outcomes for students while ensuring compliance with the law. And we are excited to share with you all several interviews over episodes to come with states that are engaged in that work so that we can learn together about this process. Thank you, Susan. It's so important for our listeners to understand that when we talk about general supervision, we really are referring to both of those sides, accountability and support, because Often it seems like general supervision gets a bad rap for being compliance focused, but even when we are focusing on improving compliance, that requires a lot of support. And the state agencies that we work with and are going to be interviewing through this podcast put a lot of resources into that support. So whenever we talk about general supervision, we really are talking about that broad picture and both the levers of accountability and support. So with that, let's all pick up our soup spoons and dive in to our interview with Becky and Nicole in South Carolina. Um, Well, hello everyone. We are excited to welcome Becky Davis and Nicole Adams from the South Carolina Department of Education to our podcast today to share an overview of their RBAS or results-based accountability and support system design and some of the lessons they've learned along their journey. Um, And to kick us off, I'm going to invite Becky and then Nicole to introduce themselves by sharing with us their, we know their names, um, but their title and their work responsibilities, something that they enjoy about the work that they do. And because this is, of course, our General Soup podcast, also their favorite soup. So Becky, let's start with you. Thanks, Susan. We appreciate the opportunity to be part of this. I am Becky Davis. I am the director in the Office of Special Education Services at the South Carolina Department of Education. 
And my favorite thing about the work I do is that I get to work with a very dynamic, creative group of people who are firmly committed to improving outcomes for kids with disabilities in our state and who love the challenge of thinking outside the box and, and doing and questioning why we've always done it this way. And my favorite soup is French onion soup because it's got a very salty taste. And I also use it in stews and all kinds of, of different cooking options. It's Amazing. because she's salty. Yes. Well, <laughs> do you like it with the cheese where the cheese is like coming around the top of the bowl? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So she's salty and cheesy. So <laughs> We need the drum. Yes, yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Thank you, Becky. <laughs> you can save up what you want to share when Nicole's done introducing herself. Nicole, tell us about yourself. <laughs> oh, yes, this is uh, Dr. Nicole Adams. Um, I am the assistant director here at the Office of Special Education Services in South Carolina. Um, and my job responsibilities are everything my boss tells me to do. It's everything Becky tells me to do. Um, and my favorite thing about work is actually it's the same as when I was a teacher and when I was in the classroom. My favorite thing is that aha moment when you can see that epiphany or that click or the light bulb turn on and people go, oh my gosh, I finally get what you mean. So whether it's with kids or with adults, it's, it's watching them have that experience of that aha that's really cool. Um, that would definitely be the favorite thing about what I do. And my favorite soup is is chili a soup is chili a soup sure. because because I, I like it thick just like work i like it thick <laughs> meaty and full of substance your metaphors are fantastic <laughs> we'll take chili as a soup we, we take a broad okay. a Excellent. broad approach to defining Excellent. soup yes well thank you both yes thank you both and nicole your description of your favorite thing about your job was a great segue into our first question about kind of aha moments and where things get started because We'd love for you all to start with telling us what prompted your state, what prompted you on South Carolina to work toward a more results-driven accountability and support system. We had a great deal of turnover with our state systemic improvement plan or SEP coordinator position during phases one and two. And I actually was hired as the SEP coordinator at the beginning of phase three. And at that point, in trying to recreate what had happened in phase one, what had happened in phase two, and piece together why we were doing what we were doing, we put together a results-driven accountability team to oversee the implementation of the ESSIP work. And this kind of prompted us to reach out to National Center for Systemic Improvement and some of our other TA partners to help us look at how we could overhaul and redefine our entire system of general supervision so that we were focusing on results and not quite so much compliance. And I have to say that for me, the aha moment, like Nicole was saying, I have Susan Hayes to thank for. She had come down to work with us in the initial stages of looking at our system of general supervision, and she said, you're not compliant if you're not improving outcomes for students. And it really, it was like the light bulb coming on. And I went, wow, that's exactly right. 
I have it now written on a sticky note that I keep on my laptop. It's probably in every PowerPoint presentation I ever do to any group, and I threaten to have it um, as a tattoo, but I haven't quite gotten up that nerve yet. Well, and I, I started with um, OSIS. I, I had a, my background is in special education and from way back in special education, but I had a brief stint, a brief dark period in the Office of Assessment and left them to come over to, no, it's not a dark period, it was lovely, just nobody likes you. Um, so came over to the Office of Special Education Services. Um, I've been here about a year now. And when I came, Becky had a thousand spinning plates that she had to keep in the air. And one of them, she said, we started this process with NCSI and this plate is going to stop spinning if somebody doesn't help me spin it. <laughs> um, and I did an evaluation of all of the programs. I, my first title was team lead of programs and initiatives. And um, I looked at all of the programs and initiatives and said, okay, I think the problem is we're doing 400 things kind of, we're doing 400 things kind of well. And depending on who's in charge of it, it could go really well or not as really well. So we've got 400 things, and really, if you, if you want to make an impact, if you want to make a lasting change, you can't spread your direction, your focus that many directions. You just, you can't. So um, part of what we did with NCSI and what they had done, we took that, they had already developed a mission when I started, and it was a beautiful, like they had, this is great. And so the next steps were, what doesn't fit with this mission? What doesn't belong? It was kind of like the Sesame Street, one of these things are not like the other. And except it was three of those things <laughs> that didn't match. And we came down to four. And I think that was kind of the defining, for me, it was the defining moment when we really were able to grab onto that change to feel the differences when we said, these are the four things that we feel we need to focus on to improve student outcomes. Thank you. And Becky, I'm thinking we need to embroider that, right? That statement on like an, I'm, in, I'm envisioning an embroidered pillow, but yes. I, I really do love the idea of a tattoo as well. So oh, cocktail napkins. <laughs> we could have, I think we could go all out there. T-shirts. Yes. <laughs> we'll have a whole line. <laughs> Mugs, T-shirts. Mu <laughs> Stay tuned. Those will be in the show notes where you can yes. get your own embroidered <laughs> pillow and mug. I love a general that. soup you. merch. We can have a soup <laughs> bowl with that, the soup bowl, you know, like with the handles on it that says it on yes. it. It'll be perfect. So many possibilities. Um, and that's a, a beautiful segue. I think, um, Nicole, you mentioned the mission statement that the team had crafted to really drive this work and this shift. So can you and Becky speak a bit to that? We think of it sometimes as the North Star, um, how you all describe your overall goal for your general supervision system and any of that language that you all have found to be important for your vision in terms of your grounding assumptions or your, your overall mission. It would be lovely to hear you talk about those pieces. So we, we looked at the what we were doing, how we were doing it, to whom we were doing it, and what the expectation or the expected outcome was. And what we came up with in looking um, at defining our core was that what our office was charged to do is provide consistent, collaborative, proactive, so those are our describing words, 
direction and support that's focused in the four areas that Nicole talked about, early childhood, academics, social, emotional, and post-secondary outcomes. So if we provide that consistent collaborative direction and support in those four areas, and we're going to do it using database decision-making, quality instruction, evidence-based practices, making sure that we're um, using good family and community engagement and that everything we're doing is with fidelity, then the districts will have the infrastructure, the capacity, and sustainability to provide students with disabilities. And here's kind of our key phrase equitable access and opportunity to meet the, what we call the profile of the South Carolina graduate, which is world-class knowledge, world-class skills, life and career characteristics. So we felt like that captured what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, what the result at the district level would be, and then ultimately providing that equitable access and opportunity for our students. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you so much. So I love that, Becky. And thinking about database decision making and how that's operationalized and you and you give feedback to your districts, which sounds really important. Can you talk us through how you make LEA determinations and how kind of those priorities you've described impact your determinations? So we started four years ago using a point system because we can't forget about compliance, but we also, we had been so heavily compliance-oriented, pulling files, IEP reviews, checklists, those kinds of things, but compliance is important, so that's part of what we look at, but then we have seven performance factors, and it's graduation rate, preschool LRE, school-age LRE, um, math and ELA performance on our statewide assessments, suspension rate, and career readiness. So we look at the seven factors and we compare district performance against not only our state actual performance, but our state target. And districts get points for exceeding the state target of the state performance. And they also get a point if they improved, even if they didn't meet the state target, they get a point for improving from their previous year's results. So we um, combined all of that into our determination, and it's a possibility, I think, of 36 points, and aligned with OSEP's um, meets requirements, needs assistance, needs intervention, needs substantial intervention. And that's what we had been using um, to make our determination. So there was still some compliance in there, but it was the first time we had ever made substantial decisions using results-based. And our districts actually, we still had some difficulty getting districts to take it seriously and to realize that it meant something. But I think we've kind of figured out a way to get them to pay a little bit better attention. And Nicole, if you'll talk about what we're actually doing with the determinations and how we're integrating that into our technical assistance at this point. Absolutely. What we did was we took our LEA determinations and turned them into a risk assessment. So we had to focus in on what we thought were the most important parts. And we really felt, um, specifically as a state, that we wanted to make a big turn. Compliance is important, but make that turn from compliance to outcomes. So we took those seven performance factors, um, not that they still get their LEA determinations based with those compliance factors, but we took those seven performance factors um, and 
put together a score and said, all right, let's look at who's struggling with performance the most where. But we had to do that, but we also had to compare over years because our LEAs are very, very little and very, very big. We have some LEAs that's one K through 12 school that they could all practically go in the same building and one that is 100,000 kids. So it runs the gamut. And when you're looking at something like graduation rate, if you look at a single year for that itty bitty little school, if they had two kids eligible to graduate who happened to take the alt and didn't achieve a diploma, it looks like they would have scored, well, they would have scored a zero. It doesn't look like they would have scored a zero. They would have scored a zero. And so you can't base it off of that one year. So it takes those, uh, it takes three years worth of results. And still that data is just the temperature check. It's still the check that you do when you go to the doctor and he takes your vitals and says, okay, you're good. We'll leave you alone. Or, hey, let's look a little deeper. So we use those LEA determinations, the results over a period of three years. And then if any of those districts, um, in order to have the capacity at the state office, we also had to consider how many districts can we actually put in a tier and actually be able to provide support to. So that was another piece of it. So in order to get to a group that we could work with, we also threw out anybody who was meet expectations during that three-year period, regardless of what that end score was, we also left them in universal support. So we tiered everybody's supports, universal supports, tier two, tier three, tier two and tier three, since we're still dipping our fingers in the toe, our toes in the water here, um, dipping our fingers in the soup. Is that what we're doing here? We're dipping we our are. fingers in the soup. We're, like we're testing the soup. Yes. Yes. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> We, we left those um, tier two and tier three groups together because we're not entirely sure what differentiates between two and three and what it's going to take to get them out of there. They've got systemic problems. If what we're measuring them on is graduation rate, you don't turn that over in a year. You can't change that in a year other than possibly discipline. And you might not have done it right if you can flip it over in a year. You might have just stopped reporting it. So we know that we're going to be working with that same group pretty intensively over a period of time. We didn't want to define tier two and tier three until we had more data because once you get to tier two, there's other pieces that come in because you need that qualitative data um, and you need more to make a decision because a graduation rate of 5% doesn't tell you the whole story. You need more information. That's really helpful, Nicole. And I'll just mention to to our listeners that you all were um, generous enough to do a presentation on this a couple weeks ago and developed some PowerPoint slides. So we'll make sure those are available to accompany this episode. So folks who want to dig in a little bit more um, into some of the, the technicalities of how you run those calculations can do so. Um, but I wonder if, if everything that you all just shared is a nice segue into talking a bit about the way you plan to provide support to those districts in Tier 2 and Tier 3 and those four teams that you've established for those four priority areas. It'd be great to hear you say a bit more about that. So we, we have put everybody in our office into one of four teams, early childhood, social, emotional, academic, or post-secondary. And that includes our fiscal and our data and technology folks. So everybody is, is on a team and it's based on their areas of expertise and also their areas of interest as much as we could take that into consideration. And then we've tried to build out where we saw gaps. We found out that there were only two of us actually who had had experience teaching preschool at all. Most of our folks had experience at middle school and then in um, 
high school. So once we divided into the four teams, we started looking at similar frameworks to make sure that, that we're being consistent. And as Nicole said, our primary focus this year has been building out the universal supports that anyone can access. I will say that as bad as COVID has been, it has really pushed us, I think, to make some changes more quickly than we typically would have with how we provide support and, and looking at alternative um, methods of providing support and professional development and adult learning. And so we've spent time building out universal supports across all four areas. And then our tier two and tier three, we have been working for a long time with a couple of um, our higher ed kind of agencies and have built out some real good supports for our post-secondary. We have a Transition Alliance of South Carolina that is kind of the boots on the ground, and they are the ones that can go into a district and actually work with district folks and district teams. We're developing more fully a Behavior Alliance of South Carolina because we've got to have We've got to have acronyms, and so we have TASC for the post-secondary with transition. We have BASC for the behavior, and then we have, it doesn't rhyme with BASC or TASC, but it is the South Carolina um, Preschool Inclusion Network, or SCIPI, um, for early childhood. So we're working on now that academic support, but working through those partners to sort of meet in the middle, again, we've put lots of time and we'll continue developing the universal supports that are available and easily accessible to anyone, and then those intensive supports. And so what we envision happening is that meeting in the middle will be those targeted supports that we'll be able to provide in conjunction with our TA providers. Well, the other layer of support that we have in there is think of that jigsaw activity that teachers do in their classroom where she breaks everybody up or he breaks everybody up into groups and you become an expert in one area when there are so many things there are so many moving parts and pieces that you know what you become an expert in one area and then I'm going to have you go back and teach it to people. So we took that focus group and everybody on those focus groups are also on a regional or a cohort group. So they are there on a cohort team. So each one of those cohort teams has a social emotional professional, a um, post-secondary outcomes professional, a academic. academics professional, and an early childhood professional, where they get to be that expert, but they are assigned very specific districts. Um, because we do know from the way that we did general supervision historically that districts do appreciate a single point of contact or a single-ish point of contact, one person so that they don't have to try to figure out the layout of the land or who to go to or who holds the key to what magical activity. So they have that cohort group as well. So if you are then on that cohort group, each of those districts, those focus groups created a root cause analysis for those focus groups. So we take that root cause analysis and it goes to that cohort group and they look at it together between those four professionals and say, yeah, yeah, they, you know what? They are okay here. Whoa, they are not okay. And so those groups have also identified which of those seven performance factors applies most to their group. Like for instance, with um, post-secondary outcomes, it is definitely um, grad rate 
it is definitely um, career readiness and it is your your English scores. We, we do put a lot of the eggs in the literacy basket, um, even legislatively here in South Carolina. So that your ELA rate times goes into a lot of factoring. So they take those and they kind of go, okay, you know what, we're going to hook you up with our post-secondary professional because you clearly need the most help here. Or, hey, you know what, early childhood, you guys are rocking it. We don't need to bother you with what's going on over there. Let's focus your attention, your supports in the right area. Wow. That's great. And so many different people you're coordinating. So I heard Becky talk about internal staff reorganization, right, to get on those teams and then coordinating the districts working together and then coordinating all of these external stakeholders as well in the technical assistance. A lot of probably tough decisions made there, right? Yeah, it's spinning plates. You're right. A lot of spinning plates. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about, I think it would be really interesting to hear how you made decisions through this design process, how you made the design and how you brought those people along and involved them, both your external and internal stakeholders. So your staff and then those external stakeholders, as well as districts. And how is that going? How is bringing them along? And where are you kind of at in that process? But a little bit more about that design and the involvement of those stakeholders. And it is an ongoing process, both with internal stakeholders and external stakeholders. We started this, like I said, um, about four years ago with the ESSIP work and that creation of the results-based accountability team. And that was one of five teams in our office. We had fiscal data technology. We had a team that was um, focused on monitoring, and it was called oversight and assistance. And then we had the programs and initiative team. And the teams didn't necessarily talk a lot to each other, which is really strange, but oversight and assistance would go and do their on-site monitoring and they would pull their files and do their IEP checks. And um, they would then do technical assistance programs and initiatives did their thing. And so when the results driven accountability team came on, we started trying to get everybody to play together. We also had, um, fortunately or unfortunately, South Carolina has the distinction of having had the only um, settlement agreement because of MFS issues in the nation and that we have thankfully wrapped up finally. But in looking at all of that work, that's where we um, kind of came up with the seven performance factors. And we used those in the MFF, MFS work, and then pulling in the ESSIP work to that. And our simmer was um, improving reading outcomes for students with disabilities at grade three. And so really concentrating on that, those results, and then trying to pull in other folks. The team leads for each of those teams, um, for most of the teams, were pretty on board with things. Our other aha was, wow, the state performance plan really is our six-year IEP. It should be the focus of everything that we're doing. And so starting to lobby staff about this and lay the groundwork, and as a former early literacy reading teacher, I really do believe that redundancy builds fluency. So it was saying the same things to staff over and over, 
and trying to reassure them that we were not looking to make changes because we were not saying that what you've been doing in the past that's been so compliance focused has been wrong. What we're saying is that because of your hard work and the focus that you've had, you've put us in a position to be ready and able to take that next step. And so for what, Nicole, for at least a year and a half, it's really been that kind of that balance and trying to support as we move forward. And our external stakeholders, our uh, districts, I think, have come on board more easily maybe than our, some of our internal staff. But we're at the point with the tilt now that it's a firm, this is the direction we're going. We'll provide you support and skills to come with us. We'll also slow the bus down long enough if you feel the need to get off, but this is the direction that we're going in. We have a firm commitment to improving outcomes. We're using evidence. We're using research-based, and this is the way to do it, and this is what we are going to do. The other piece of that that's been uh, not a challenge, I don't want to make it a challenge is simply an opportunity in work clothes. So I don't want to make it sound like it, I think it's a bad thing, but we've also been using leading by convening and trying very hard to do this bottom up. And sometimes that's very difficult, especially when you've had folks that have worked in a top down, um, they've been institutionalized to a top down, here it comes, you just go and do. So it's a little tough sometimes when you're like, no, go ahead and make that decision. And they're like, no, I can't, I, 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 no, you make that decision. And we're okay, we'll make your decision, but you just you got to be ready to like it. So we've definitely been trying that bottom up, which also is a little bit slower. And that's okay, that's okay, but that's why it can be frustrating sometimes, and it doesn't go as fast as some of us want sometimes, but that's also how you build buy-in. And, and when you've got that buy-in, it makes all the difference. And, and along those lines, another good thing that's come out of COVID is, is as soon as our public school buildings were closed, we pulled together a stakeholder group that was a broad representative of our district's bed directors, some of our higher ed special ed professors, our um, parent advocacy groups, and then some of our staff members. And we met weekly and we talked about what was going on, how do we meet your needs, what, what do we do, how do we do it, and from that, then developed a call with districts that was once a week um, to get feedback, but also to give them any information, any guidance. The stakeholder group worked on developing some guidance. The other thing it did was to give us great access to our higher ed stakeholders, our parent advocacy group stakeholders, and our, our district, our LEA reps. And in doing that, if we were intending to roll out this new system at our spring administrators conference in March of 2020, and COVID changed that. So then we said, okay, we'll, we'll kind of roll it out in a little more gentle fashion, but we'll roll it out and we'll start in September, November. And this was, this was mid-summer, I guess, maybe early summer. And the closer we got to that, the more we saw that districts just weren't ready for that, whether we were or not, um, but districts just weren't ready. And we, we've got such a wide range of where our districts are with whether they're face-to-face, -face, hybrid, they're still all virtual, 
there's still, we've got one or two districts that are still doing paper and pencil packets. And so based on the feedback from our stakeholder group, we said, okay, we, we hear you loudly and clearly. Let's look at how we can change this rollout. So we have this year, um, like Nicole said, we monitor all of our districts every year. But with the rollout, with the use of the root cause analysis, we have offered districts the ability to opt in if they want to and have gotten a really good response. And I think some of the districts that we might have gotten a pushback from if we had said, you're going to play, when we said, would you like to, or when we asked, would you like to play, we've gotten a better response that way. So listening to stakeholders and trying to be sensitive to, to their needs and it probably didn't hurt that um, South Carolina was chosen in the first cohort for the new OSEP DMS monitoring process. And so we knew exactly what our districts felt like. Because I, I have always said in research shows um, that you need to prepare people and that change goes much easier if you've said it so many times. By the time you actually change, they're like, God, finally. So, you know, we were trying to say it and say it and say it. They didn't hear it as much as they would have without COVID going on. That's that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They're just trying to survive. So it's hard to do new teaching, which is what Becky had to convince me of as we rolled out. And she's like, we need to scale back. We need to pull back, Nicole. Because uh, I kind of took a line of, there are some things in life that just have to go on, dang it. <laughs> Some things in life just have to keep moving forward. And, and so, well, and to, to keep up with our soup theme, um, and I don't remember who said it, but I, I, it's posted in my office that what we wanted them to do was to look at their data and, and come up with formative assessment that would help them because the data we provide is, is summative. It's the end of it's your graduation. It's your end of the year standardized assessment. And if you wait until you get those data, you don't have any opportunity, just like a, a good IEP process, you don't have any good opportunity to change. And so what we tried telling them was when the cook tastes the soup, that's formative assessment. That gives you the opportunity to add a little more salt or add a little bit of basil or whatever you need to add to your soup, but by the time you get your summative results, that's when your customers in the restaurant are taking are tasting the soup, and it's too late to do anything about it by that point. So here's your opportunity to look at your data and to figure out, again, what the ingredients are. What are you missing? Let's analyze what goes into that soup to make a good soup, and graduation rate is a good example you're looking at discipline, attendance rate, credit earned, um, opportunity and access to courses. So all of those things that go into making a good graduation rate is what you need to be looking at now. Don't wait to get your graduation data. And that's what we tried to do with the root cause analysis is to help them identify those pieces that they do have control over and, and changes that they can make. I love that you all think and talk in metaphors. It's, it's beautiful. Not only the work that you all do, but the way you communicate it is just um, so accessible and it tells such a beautiful story. Something else you all both do and have done as long as I've known you organically is you, you, you capture those lessons learned as you're telling your story. And that was our final question, which I'll rephrase a little bit, but just in 
as I was jotting down notes as you all were talking, I've heard a couple lessons that you shared. Um, one, that message clearly and consistently and often. I love the redundancy builds fluency. Um, we could put that on the backside of our embroidered pillow, I think. Yes. It feels like a, a, another quote that's, that's really important. I also heard that notion of being intentional about supporting your own state level staff and really empowering them to help shape this work, which I, I think was, was really powerful. Um, that notion of engaging stakeholders and really listening to them and not being afraid to make changes to your system or your timing based on what you're hearing from them. Um, I also heard this notion of there being value sometimes, I think you all were strategic about when to do this, but there being value sometimes in making things voluntary, incentivizing participation instead of requiring it. So some incredible gems there. I think with our little bit of time left, we wanted to ask, are there any other lessons learned or advice that you might offer other states who are just beginning this work that, that can benefit from your experience having maybe gone first? I think for me, it's, it's a firm commitment, and this is the right thing to do for kids. I mean, improving outcomes or focusing on outcomes is the right thing to do. And when you look at, at due process data, dispute resolution data, most of the time, you don't have a parent who's unhappy just because you forgot to check a box or send a form. You have parents that are unhappy because their child is not making progress. And so if you've got a commitment that you can firmly get behind and clearly articulate and communicate to people, you just need to do it. And that's, that's kind of the decision we came to is, yeah, we're going to get pushback, we're going to get questions, but it's the right thing to do. And so I don't know. Well, Nicole. I was going to say, I think that was one of our, our, our big considerations that that was the hardest is the, do we do it right or do we do it right now? And it kind of got to this point where if we wait for it to be right, it's like, it's like a decision to have kids. If you wait till you can afford them, you're never going to have them. So do you do it right? Do you have everything planned beautifully, perfectly, um, or, or do you do it right now? Now, in hindsight, would right now have included a pandemic? Never. <laughs> But we had already started that, that, that ball down the hill, <laughs> um, and, and we stuck with the right now. So we opted for a quicker implementation just for a faster realization of goals for our, our purposes and to see change. We have been a needs assistance state for ever. Yeah, since they started it. Um, mm -hmm. We've been a needs, a needs assistance state, and we know that our current system wasn't changing student outcomes. Not to say that it was wrong, but it wasn't changing outcomes. And so we needed to make change now. And also, if, if everything in the world is changing, it, it also kind of helped that, well, let's just do it now. They, they, won't, know, they won't even notice we're changing. They're... <laughs> There's stuff going on. Um, but you, you can no longer, you can't fear change anymore when we know what we're doing isn't working. And by not working, I mean not changing outcomes. So we knew what we were doing wasn't working and we had reached a point where it, it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be right. So let's do it right now. That's great. Thank you all for those really, really insightful lessons learned. And just in general, for your generosity of spirit um, from the beginning, you have 
both Ben and your whole team has been so willing to share with our RBAS community and share in such a transparent way the successes, the wins, and the challenges. And I know that's helped so many people learn from your experience. So we express our, our sincere gratitude to you all um, for not only doing this complex work and, and walking this difficult road at times, but being willing to pause and sort of check in with us and let us know how it's going and let your state colleagues know as well. It's oh, a good reminder to be able to look back sometimes and go, oh man, we are doing, we are doing this yeah. right. <laughs> we are okay. Wait, 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 wait. So no, it's, it, it's been a good process of reflection. So it's also been very good for us because we're like, wait, they're not going to invite us up there because they want to use us as an example of what not to do. A non-example. So, <laughs> yeah. You will never be the non-example. I don't know. <laughs> we'll never be the non-example. Well, thank you all. I'm, I'll be curious when this episode is released, you may get more questions. So um, from, from other states who really, again, I know have, have appreciated learning from you all along the way. And it's so reinforcing, like you said, Nicole, like it's so nice to like think back on that and feel good about it. And it's reinforcing for us too, that you, you were very kind and said some very nice things about NCSI, but just like hearing the difference that Susan and Mary and that team has made in working with you all is very reinforcing to us to keep that work going. Well, and it's, it's everybody there. Um, Sarah, you've done a great deal. One of your fiscal webinars meant a tremendous amount to us. And when I shared it with my folks, they said, that's the best I've ever heard it explained. And all of a sudden it makes sense. So we've not encountered anybody at NCSI that has not been absolutely wonderful. And we would not be a tenth as far down the road as we are with anything especially with the little bit of sanity we've been able to retain if it wasn't for NCSI. Back at you, friends. We learned so much from you all. And we always feel like it's such a privilege when we get invited in to be a part of your work. We always are kind of floating. And a lot of us have worked in, in state government and federal government. It's just such, a, it's such an honor when we get to do the work with you all. So thank you for, for the privilege, for letting us walk this road with you. And thank you all as well for embracing our general soup theme. We are going to close each of our episodes with some soup jokes. Um, so surprisingly enough, if you Google soup jokes, there are quite a few websites of, I don't know who these people are that compile niche um, jokes, but there, <laughs> there are several. And so we've chosen two today and we thought that rather than record these jokes in a vacuum with just me and Sarah and our lovely tech friends, Melissa and Sanjay, we thought we would try these jokes out on you all to see if they elicit a laugh. And if they don't, then <laughs> maybe we won't include them. They can be edited out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> are, are you ready for some soup jokes? I am ready, Nicole. Becky likes it cheesy, so it's okay. <laughs> I do. I love puns. Yes, yes. Okay, prepare. I'll do the first one, Sarah, and then um, you can do the second one. So, Here's a question for you. How do the New England Patriots eat their soup? Not too well recently with the <laughs> changes. Well, I was, trying no to out if there's, I was trying to figure out a chowder pun. I can't think of a chowder pun. Well, and all I can think is the losing season they're having right now. Let's, let's not talk about that. No. How so putting that aside. New, how do the New England Patriots eat their soup? I will tell you, Becky, they eat their soup in a Super Bowl. <laughs> or at they least they used, used to. to. <laughs> That's yes, even funnier. Yes. 
they're not eating it in a Super Bowl. <laughs> they're not year, eating it. They? No, no, not this year. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. We're laughing. Okay. <laughs> Sarah's turn. <laughs> Here's our soup joke. The sorry, I'm not sure delivery on this one's tough, Susan. Okay, so <laughs> I know. I took the okay. easy one. Here's our soup joke. So the um a person in the restaurant says to the waiter, waiter, there's a dead fly in my soup. The waiter responds, Yes, sir. It's the hot water that kills them. <laughs> I think that's funny. <laughs> Nobody else. I think we've okay. like read it too many times. The 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 fall flat was the funny part. <laughs> <laughs> I legit thought that was funny. I did too. maybe we can edit that one out this has been a great hour anyway i could do this every week with the two of you anyway oh we needed a laugh thank you guys so much so to wrap us up today for our dessert slash cheese plate um on all of our episodes we will highlight a resource available from ncsi or maybe from another ta center that we think might be helpful to our community so today we would like to highlight our rbas results-based accountability and support team developed fast fives Um, and these fast fives it's a series of short briefs designed to provide you all with bite-sized information on a key topic related to general supervision, accountability, or support systems. And we have a new FAST-5 that we would like to tell you about today. And that is one focused on risk assessments. So this particular FAST-5 answers five questions that you all may have about risk assessments, including what they are, whether or not states are required to use a risk assessment as part of your monitoring of LEAs, Um, as well as different ways that state education agencies are using risk assessments to guide their LEA monitoring, some examples of how states have chosen to organize their risk assessments, as well as some sample data points that SCAs have chosen to include in their risk assessments. So again, this is a new resource from NCSI. It's only two pages. We've gotten a lot squeezed into two pages. And it's our new FAST-5, five questions answered about risk assessments, which you can find on the NCSI website in our resource library. Thank you, Susan. We're working on more FAST-5 documents, FAST-5 resources, and appreciate any requests you have for topics or any of your resources you would like us to share on the podcast. So please contact us with requests for additional resources or a resource you would like us to share in this segment. Well, thanks for joining us today on this episode of the General Soup Podcast. This production was brought to you by the National Center for Systemic Improvement and funded by the Office of Special Education Programs in the U.S. Department of Education. Special thanks to our audio editor, Sanjay Pardanani, and our producer, Melissa Chung. See you next time when we get together again to dish on General Soup.